iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? I quit my job. And then when I quit my job, I would say that's when we decided to go all the way in. And then my co-founders decided that they were going to go shortly after I quit my job. And then we applied to Y Combinator and got rejected. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Forts in the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. Thank you for tuning in in this wildest of weeks. Now, I'm just going to take a wild guess and assume that you are getting your fill of politics this week elsewhere. I know I certainly am. I've got not nearly enough sleep staying up watching the elections and recording this on Wednesday morning. So I'm a little groggy, but given just the blanket coverage going on out here and overseas and kind of everywhere and just a general madness, we are going to stay away from the election, election tech, at least for this week. And I have a great guest to take your mind off the madness and to delve into the rapidly changing world of work. So Ruben Harris is the founder of Career Karma, which is a startup out here in the Bay Area that he wants to basically make the go-to spot for blue-collar workers uh, who are, or will be soon, either by choice or by, well, being forced into it, retrain for a transformed world of work of increased automation, software development, and other kind of roles that are being upended by technology in one way or another. So Career Karma is basically a marketplace for coding boot camps. You can kind of think of them as a LinkedIn, but for blue-collar workers instead of white-collar workers. Um, But as you'll soon hear, that is just um, step one in Ruben's grand plan. And Ruben himself has really a fascinating backstory. He started out in Atlanta as a musician. He was a cellist doing work for hip-hop artists, etc., Then he went to finance, and then he bought a one-way ticket out here to Silicon Valley, where he has now set up a business, having zero technical background. So for those who are listening, his story is quite instructive because it's not this fairy tale um, that we so often hear. Oh, I just showed up and magically got a job, and presto changeo, five years later, I'm a billionaire. Um, There was a real method to his madness, especially coming out here as an outsider. Um, And so far, it seems to be working. So anyhow, it's a fun conversation, and I think you guys will get a lot out of it. So without further ado, I give you Ruben Harris, who is the co-founder and CEO of Career Karma. Enjoy. I got in touch with you because you have a less than kind of typical story of coming to Silicon Valley and getting in this world. Yeah. So... 
perhaps we can start there and then we can talk about what you're doing now with uh, Career Karma. But if we could kind of do the backstory first and then that, that'll bring us up to present day. So yeah, I, I was born in California, grew up in Atlanta. Um, I've been playing the cello since I was four years old. So we're a family of musicians. Since um, you were four? Reason, since I was four. So I have, a four, I have a son who just turned four and we just gave him his first piano lesson. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, and we try, and so like I'm trying to figure out like I don't know if it's too early. He was into it, but after about 20 minutes, you know, he's a kid. He's just kind of like, mm. well, you know, you know, what's interesting about that. So I, I was in Montessori school right. when I when I first discovered the cello. So there was violin lessons being offered, and my mother asked the violin teacher. She this was a naive question, but she was like, "Do you teach anything more manly?" Men can play violin too, but <laughs> she did, so nothing, nothing wrong with that. And then, and then she's like, "Oh yeah, I teach the cello." And so, so we got the cello. And then, um, what the condition was is she agreed to teach me as long as I would stick with it for at least one year. So I couldn't quit for one year. And so I think that is important. Right. So like, as yeah. I think it's okay for children to explore and adults to explore and check out different things, but I do think that like. When we start something, we should at least commit to it for enough time yeah. that you can get results from it to see if you like it or not. Like for a sure. week or a month is not enough for that. So anyway, that's what started. Like I started airballing. I'll play at Christmas things. And, and then yep. over time, I'll I play group lessons. I started with the Suzuki method um, and it, it became my thing. And I played professionally. I had a lot of students that I was teaching. I did a lot of studio musician work. And um, through the process of, of learning how to become a successful musician, I started recognizing the need to become a successful business person. Because mm. people get it confused. People focus so much on like making good music, not realizing that like you're not gonna be successful as an artist if you're not good at business because you are your own brand. And so long story short, what I learned is that if I wanted to become successful as a musician, I need to learn business. As a classical musician, you meet business people a business person told me if I want to learn business in a short amount of time, I should do investment banking. Um, I got into investment banking. I did that for almost three years where I met my co-founder. Um, then we got into tech and then started this company. So just on the on the cellist bit, if you, you were doing a studio musician work, is there a lot of work for a cellist? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting that you say that. The, music, the studio musician work that I was doing was hip-hop and R&B. And a lot of the things that they would do, they would like use free loops, like FL Studio to, to make music, make beats. And a lot of the the strings like didn't sound real. So this was like before like Logic and a bunch of this, like like way more advanced software tools. And so my pitch actually to get into the studio with people is telling them that like real strings are better than keyboard strings. And so that's how I got in with like Zaytoven right. and Sounds and, and other people. And um, yeah, they will let me in there. And I, and I think deeper than like the sound, actually being creative together and coming up with sounds together is actually like what they're bringing you in for, less for your ability to play. It's easy for them to hire a contract musician to just like play what they tell you to play. But what they're looking for is people that can be creative and, and collaborate with them. But you didn't want to do that as a job. I actually did, but I realized that like there's a ceiling there's a ceiling to music. Yeah. It's not a, as big of an industry as people think that it is. And I realized that music sells everything but music. And it's like a conduit for like a lot of other stuff. And I still plan to do a lot with my music in the future. My cello teacher actually gave me this approach. My cello teacher told me, Ruben, you're a talented musician. If you want to compete 
against musicians, you can compete on your ability to play. But a lot of musicians are actually terrible business people. And so mm-hmm. a smarter approach is to get really good at business, maintain your music skills, and then hit everybody over the head with your musical talent. So you still are you you're still playing? Yeah, still play, yeah. Oh, okay. So you you went to university, you got into uh you were an investment analyst for a few years. What was in Atlanta? Is that right? So I did a double major business administration in music in Tennessee. Right. Um, so I, I started my career in Chicago, and then I went back to Atlanta. So I was an investment banker in Chicago and Atlanta uh, for about three years total. And I met my co-founder in Atlanta. And during the time when we were thinking about what we wanted to do next, because usually an investment banker, as an analyst, you work for three years, one or three years. Yeah. And then it's either private equity or hedge funds. We didn't want to do that, but we didn't know what we wanted to do. And one of our buddies quit his job as a banker, became an engineer through a boot camp. And so that's how we discovered coding boot camps. And my co-founders decided to do uh, become the engineers. And the guy that became an engineer that, that was our friend, his name is Adam Waxman. He was in the same cohort as Jack Altman, who runs a company called Lattice. And he's the brother of Sam Altman from Y Combinator. That's how we discovered Y Combinator. So while Archer and Timor, which are my co-founders, were doing coding boot camps, I bought a one-way ticket to San Francisco um, and had a place to live for months so I could learn sales so I could eventually become a CEO of the company. So that's that's how, how it worked. Why buy a one-way ticket? What was Did you have a moment where you're like, being an investment analyst, that's cool, but that's not what I want to do. I have to want to do something else. What Was there a moment where you're like, I'm going to buy a one-way ticket to San Francisco? Yeah, that's a good question. So I actually visited a couple of times before. I had been tweeting a lot. Um, one of my tweets caught the attention of a guy named Balaji Srinivasan. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to actually get him on the pod because he wants to dismantle the media as we know it. And he has some interesting ideas around that. He's, he's got a lot of thoughts on that. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> um, yeah, I met him early on, and he ta- he told me that, that we need to get out of the tech. And so I talked to him, met a bunch of other people, and I got a feel for it. And I was able to meet a group in a house that told me that I could live in their place for a month. And so then when I went to Atlanta, I told my mom, I'm, I'm just going to buy a one-way ticket to San Francisco and check it out. And I might be back later. And then I did it and I left. I never left. I think buying a one-way ticket kind of forces you to figure it out. Yeah. I always try to push myself into things that force me to grow. And there's no going backwards. It's kind of like cliff jumping, right? Yeah. Most of the time, if you climb a cliff, to jump off of it into the water, it's hard to climb back down because you're going to get cut up by all the rocks. So the only way out is to jump. Right. Right. And so I kind of like, that's how I've always operated. And so you came out here, but you didn't have, you didn't have like a technical background, correct? I did not. So while, while I was out here, my co-founders that didn't have technical backgrounds, they decided to be the ones that were going to have technical backgrounds. So they decided to do coding boot camps and become engineers. And then I decided to master sales. And instead of working for the same company, we worked for different companies. And we decided to do a similar investment banking stint. So like, let's work for one to three years at tech companies. And then after we've learned from these different companies, we can come back to together right. and start our own companies. Kind of like a, a backwards version of the Wu-Tang Clan. But the people that don't know what the Wu-Tang Clan <laughs> is, you know, the Wu-Tang Clan started together and then they went separate. Exactly. <laughs> so we started separate and coming together. Yeah. Right, right, right. So you like the coding Wu-Tang. <laughs> so what was your first job? What job did you get here? I started off at a company called Alt School, mm-hmm. which is a um, 
K through like a, a K through eight system focused on personalized education. Um, so essentially, they built a software layer on top of schools to. It, was, it reminded me a lot of of Montessori, where they had these like mixed age classrooms, small student teacher ratios, and the vision was to create a software layer on top of the schools so that you can take the knowledge that we learned from these classrooms to outsource it to the public school systems. That right. was like the bigger vision. And I was on the on the admissions role. So I was able to learn a lot about criteria and ways to qualify students or how to uh, complement students or how to work with parents, how to just all the things that come to, to do with admissions. So that was my first role. And how did you get that job? After, I mean, you know, just showing up here, not knowing anybody. That's an interesting question. Well, um, at, for the people that are listening, I would definitely point them to a, a, the blog that I wrote about. It's called Breaking Into Startups, um, From Cello to Investment Banking to All School. But um, if I was going to put it in a nutshell, the first thing that I did was write down the types of companies I want to work for. The types of companies that I wanted to work for were companies that were solving problems further down Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's number one, because I wanted to work for a company that was need to have versus nice to have. If you look at what tech has created in the last few years, it's a bunch of like great com- consumer products, which yeah. are nice. But like, I'm not talking about Snapchat or Pinterest, which are great. I'm talking about like electricity, right? Or, yeah. or housing or, or, or financials. So anyway, the things that I've done in my life are, are healthcare education, politics. That's the types of companies I work for before I started Career Karma, which is workforce development, these fundamental things that people need. Um, because no matter if we are in a bear cycle or a bull cycle in the stock market or in the market in general, you're always going to be good because yeah. you've picked something that's a need. Right? So that was number one. I also wanted to work for a company that the CEO has had some success and has the problem themselves. Right? So mm. I wanted a team a CEO that has the same problem that he's trying to solve. I wanted a team that's done it before with them and ideally uh, a company that was series B or below. So well-funded and in a place where I can actually add value. So using that criteria, I was able to narrow down a list of companies based in San Francisco. I had a very strategic outreach approach and through a bunch of um, emails, phone calls, coffee meetings, I was able to get my first job. A lot of cold emails. A lot of cold emails. I sent out um, a lot of cold emails in my life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I have read that article to which you just referred. And so apologies for making you tell that story again, but I think it's... Oh, no, no, it's good. I think it's actually instructive because a lot of people say, well, I just showed up here and I got a job. But nobody really understands how these things work. And it sounds like you were quite... um, You had a plan. Well, yeah, I did. And and I'm going to say something since we're on the subject. What's interesting is... Even if you have a really well-structured plan, a lot of times, and this has happened like almost in every area of my life when it comes to trying to get a new job or raise money, the opportunity that becomes the one tends to be something that you completely didn't expect, right? And so don't always ignore serendipity, right? Yeah. Like a lot of the companies where I crossed the interviews and I didn't get in, I was devastated in the beginning because I didn't realize like, what was what was there for me but the the opportunity that i got with alt school it actually was a result of me taking a random meeting in san francisco that my friend in chicago recommended me to take and it was a guy that just like works for a coffee shop or so i thought 
right. when I added him on, on LinkedIn, I realized that he used to be an intern at Google and he was in the same cohort as this lady that worked at art school and I had a random coffee meeting with her and right. they actually had no jobs available. There was no jobs available. And she told me that they weren't hiring, but literally that same day in the evening, she asked me if I wanted a contractor job. And I took that that opportunity and essentially was able to create my own role in collaboration with her. Right. And so that's something to, to keep in mind is that there's a good quote that says, many times rejection is simply direction that feels like failure. So just don't give up and just make sure that you keep going according to your process. Yeah. And so you did that for, for a while and then you jumped to another company. Was it Honor? Is that right? Yep. The other company was Honor. Yep. And what, what were you doing there? How long were you there? Yeah, I was on the lead generation and partnerships team. And so the reason why that was super valuable for me is because lead generation was something I've never done before. Like I literally signed my contract to just do partnerships, but then they like literally put me into a lead generation role that I had to figure out. The reason why that's important is because marketing is essential for sales. And really understanding how lead generation is done in this day and age is very different with how it was done during the Mad Men era. And it really served as a pivotal or critical point that's really even helpful with what I'm doing today with Career Karma. So that was a big deal. After I did lead generation and partnerships with different um, customers, I actually became a, a leader on the outside sales team. And so I, in the beginning, I was aggregating, helping aggregate the nursing supply because it's a caregiving marketplace, matching caregivers with seniors and things like that. So I aggregated the nursing supply and matched them with different customers. And I was, I was able to become one of the top salespeople um, for Honor. Yeah. And then you launched Career Karma. Nope. Then I went to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> then I went to a company called Hustle. Um, what's interesting about right. that is, um, remember that house that I told you that I lived in for a month? Yeah. That was like um, a co coder's house or something or like a bunch yeah, of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's called Agape. Agape. Um, started by the Justin Rosenstein, who's a co-founder of Asana. And there's a bunch of amazing people there that I've met in my life, um, including some of our investors. But um, I bring up Hustle because Justin's brother, Perry Rosenstein, started a company with a guy named Roddy called Hustle, which is a political technology company, which is very relevant for what's happening today. Yep. And essentially, it's a text messaging platform that you use to help get out the vote. Um, and it was very, very big. Um, and so I was, I was the director of sales during their seed round. I was able to help them raise their Series A and, and hit different milestones and grow quickly. I created like some of their advisory boards, made some big hires, and, and I learned a lot there as well. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So you came here, you kind of got all these experiences at these different jobs. And then was there a certain point where you're like, all right, I've done enough of this. Now I want to do my own thing. That's a good question. Um, like if you look at my resume and you hear somebody say my bio, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. But it's, it's, and I always say this, there was no like clear moment where like, all right, let's do this. It was more like on the side of working at these three different companies you were talking about in 2016, two years after we moved to the Bay area, uh, we started a podcast called Breaking Into Startups. And it was named after that article. And it, we launched it December 2016. Mm-hmm. And essentially, we dropped podcasts of stories of everyday people like you and me that figured out how to break into tech. Because right. the media tends to focus mostly on CEOs and venture capitalists yes. and not the people that are building the companies. And hearing us a, a constant source of success stories is super important for workers that are struggling to make the transition. And so um, to answer your question, through sharing these stories, we started receiving lots of emails from people asking for advice to get into jobs. Then we created a chat bot that would point them to different teaching programs for the jobs that they want. Mm. And then those job training programs started reaching out to us asking how they can engage with our users better so we could understand what their money problems were and their their just problems in general were. Um, and then they, the school started paying us for different things. And then that's when we realized that we can do something special. And then when, when I would check in with my personal board of directors that I talk about in that blog post, one of them, his name is Michael Seibel, told me that I need to do Y Combinator. And I was like, okay. And he was like, all right, cool. Well, let me know when you're ready. And then I'll hit him up to ask him, tell him I'm ready. And he will say, have you quit your job yet? And he said, I said, no. He's like, you're not ready. And that happened multiple times. And so right. if I was going to pin it on one point, I quit my job. And then when I quit my job, I would say that's when we decided to go all the way in. And then my co-founders decided that they were going to go shortly after I quit my job. And then we applied to Y Combinator and got rejected. so that so that's another like feet to feet to the fire moment where man i just quit my job i did what i was i was told to do and michael seibel runs y combinator (laughs) michael seibel runs y combinator so that it's not like a a nepotism type of thing like i i I got rejected (laughs) you know and so um we learned from the nyc we did get the yc interview at that time Michael was like, okay, well, you're the CEO, right? If you need money, what are you, you supposed to do? I was like, I don't know. It's like, raise some, right? You know, why do you think people live out here? Raise some money. Yeah. Like, okay. And so um, 
long story short, I raised a little pre-seed round um, and then the company started making money. And then we applied again that same year in December um, and we got in. Right. And then the rest of history, we did a, did a seed round um, after Y Combinator of last year. And now we're about to announce something big soon. And so what is Career Karma? Like, what is it y'all are doing? How many people, how many people use it, et cetera? Yeah, so Career Karma is the easiest way to find a job training program online. So we serve blue-collar workers between the age of 25 and 35 years old that want to get a job in tech. And we match them to job training programs currently offering six different career paths in technical and non-technical roles. Um, what makes us unique is not only will we match you to one of 450 boot camps and eventually one of the trade schools, colleges, and universities in our directory. We have 7,000, by the way. But you can also get support during the program through our social network of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and then also when you get to the job search, you can upload your projects. We can match you to different hiring platforms and companies and individuals that are working to help you find the job. So um, you can think about it like an alternative LinkedIn to blue collar workers that has a much deeper skill development side of things. Why, why blue collar workers? Because that's the biggest need. Most of the labor market focuses on white collar workers or yeah. people that already have the skills to get jobs. And so um, going back to my principles about focusing on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you think about 3 billion people in the, in the global workforce and 2 billion of them being blue collar, I mean, LinkedIn got acquired for $26 billion and they focus on white collar with only 600 million people in the last like 15 years, you know. And by building a platform that works well for blue collar workers, it'll probably work well for white collar workers too so you can capture the entire market. And also, you're not competing with anybody. Nobody's. I mean, there's people that do things that are similar to what we're doing, but we're essentially creating our own category and positioning ourselves to be the category kings of the rapid reskilling movement. That's why we're doing that. So I have a couple of questions. One, do coding boot camps work? And two, if you're aiming at blue collar workers who are trying to retrain for, you know, high tech industries, if you're a blue collar, you probably don't have the 15 or 20 grand that a boot camp costs up front to pay for it. So how's that all work? Great question. Um, so one, yes, boot camps work. So my co-founders, the way they became engineers is they did boot camps. Our buddy that quit the bank, they did a boot camp. My brother did a boot camp. Uh, so career conference and product, we wish that we had when we were breaking into tech. So so we did it. We just didn't have guidance. And yeah. we were like, wow, if these boot camps work for us, this is going to work for everybody. Right? This is going to be amazing. My co-founders are immigrants. Their parents are blue collar. Right? We've helped a lot of people with colorful histories figure out how to get high paying jobs in a short amount of time. Mm. But to your question about financials, you know, most yeah. people don't have ten to $15,000 in their pocket. Yeah. Or ten to fifty thousand dollars in their pocket to even pay. Uh, so how do you do that? Well, there's a few ways. Most people explore either an income share agreement or a deferred tuition option. And so income share agreements. I have a video on our YouTube channel called "How Income Sharing Works" for the people that yeah. want to check it out. Where I talk about the history of it. Um, but essentially, an income share agreement is a promise, and, and the promise is that, "Hey, Danny, I believe in you." Yeah. And I believe in what I know how to teach. And I promise you, if you do what I teach you, you will get a job. And I believe in that so much that if you don't get a job, you don't have to pay me a dime. But I promise I'm going to work with you for the next three to six months or three to nine months, whatever. Right. But if you do get a job, Danny, 
then you agree to pay me the tuition out of your new salary. And yeah. so that is that is the model that is most appealing to people because they don't have to pay. They could drop out at any time and not pay. Some of them do have conditions where like if you've been there for like longer than like three months, you'll still have to pay a portion of it. But yeah. um, for the most part, you have an out without having to get debt. And it's not debt. It's not, there's no interest on these things. There's no like extra money that you're paying. Like it's very clear what it is. I um, mean, there are variations on the model called deferred tuition. And so are you guys, are you guys serving as that finance function? Cause we've had, we've had, um, we had Austin Allred on the pod probably a couple yep. years ago yep. at Lambda. We were obviously. Lambda. So yeah. are you guys stepping in to, to be that funder of those, of those, income sharing agreements or, or or is it really school to school that offer it in other words are more and more of these coding boot camps and schools offering that as an option yeah there's over 60 boot camps right now that offer this as an option right um it's also spreading to colleges there's a lot of colleges that offer income sharing agreements there's trade schools that there's a real new company called trade up that's offering this for trade schools um mm. and there's a, a bunch of really cool like the, the income share agreement model is spreading to everybody it's not it's like table stakes now you have to have it um, at least as an option, something like that. Oh, that's interesting. How much? How quickly has that changed? Very quickly. Yeah. I would definitely give credit to to Lambda for like making it very popular. And when you watch that video that I said, um, and Austin's a good friend of mine. When you watch that video about how income sharing works, it'll tell you about the history of income sharing agreements going all the way back to Yale, which is where it started, and and a bunch of other cool things there. Um, but right. one more thing I wanted to say is there's some schools that'll even um do money back guarantee. So if you pay money up front, they'll give you money back guarantee. Um, there's something called a corporate ISA, which is very interesting where a company will pay for it. And yeah. then in exchange for you working for them, then you pay it off by you just not leaving. And yeah. then if you do decide to leave, then you end up paying for it uh, or the rest of it. So that's an interesting model. Um, you're starting to see government step in like San Diego Workforce Development Partnership. They have an ISA fund for college skill development. Mm-hmm. And then there's like obviously the GI Bill that currently exists for boot camps as well, um, scholarships. And I think that once this election is over, we're probably going to be seeing more government initiatives for skill development. So that's my prediction. Right. And is the idea that, again, going for the part of the market that you're going for, is the idea that people are going to have to retrain because of automation, et cetera? Our premise is that People are going to change careers five or more times in their lifetime. And as they embrace lifelong learning, they're going to have to go to, from school to school to school and company to company to company. Where's that number five come from? The research. You can look it up. Um, some, some, some of the research says it's 10 to 12 times or more, right? But on, on average, it's five or more times in their lifetime. Not to be conservative. But um, if people aren't going to stay at one school or one company forever anymore, and education is a com- commodity, right? The global education market is a $7 trillion market. And there's thousands of boot camps, trade schools, colleges, universities, millions of online courses, right? Essentially, like, everybody teaches the same thing. So mm-hmm. even if you're great at teaching one thing, you're not going to be great at everything. And we understood that. So when, you, when we think about creating a platform that can help a billion people in the workforce development space, we needed to be a conduit that matches the biggest workforce or, or people seeking skill development to training, build their trust, and then become their trusted advisor 
for the rest of their life. You see what I'm saying? Because yep. if we can help you get into your first job, then we can help you get into your next job. And since we gave you that community before, you're going to keep coming back to us for guidance anytime you want to make a switch or even while you're in your current job to figure out how to get promoted. So we're positioning ourselves to, to be that trusted advisor for your, your career. How do you all get paid? Uh, we get paid from the school. The schools pay us anytime they get enrollments or introductions. And how much money have you guys raised? Publicly, uh, about $2 million. And we'll make an announcement about how much we've total raised soon. Right. How's it been in Silicon Valley um, as a black person? That's a good question. Um, for the most part, I would say uneventful. <laughs> and, 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 and this is why. I think because I've been a black cellist for my whole life, I've known how to work with people from different backgrounds or predominantly white backgrounds, right? And then growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, which is like mostly black, I never had identity issues. I never felt ashamed about my skin color or how I have acted. Now, there has been some moments that I have felt not the best. Like, for example, some people have made comments saying that the only reason we're seeing so much success is because I'm black and people are doing things because they it's cool to do things nice for black people, right? So I've had things like that, and and I'm I do not want any pity checks. Like I want to I want to compete with the best of them, but for the most part, I would say uneventful. With that said, people in my community, people that I represent, my, my stakeholders that that have chosen to um, to believe in us on this movement, work with many people that are suffering from racial injustice. Mm. And so I'm very aware of what's going on and I do what I can to to be a part of the solution. But I've learned that if I go around waving the diversity flag, sometimes it desensitizes people, very similar to waving the police brutality flag. Like if you keep putting it in people's face and talking about it all the time, it's kind of like the best way to spread the gospel for the church is not to just be a Bible thumper and, and knock on your door and tell you, come on, be saved, right? That's mm-hmm. going to turn people off. You kind of got to live your life a certain way and inspire people and, and get them to ask questions about how they can do more for those people just based off of that. So that's how I try to operate. Right. Because I've, I've been out here now. I was living in London. I'm from the Bay Area, but I lived in London for a while, 13 years. Um, mm-hmm. and it does feel like there's a there is a little bit of a reckoning moment here between the kind of the theoretical progressivism and the actual putting that into practice, mm-hmm. especially for the big companies and whatnot. And I just, I'll be interested to see how that kind of plays out. Well, I'll tell you one thing, right? So when I first moved to the Bay in 2014, like they were talking diversity and there was a bunch of like talking in what I like to call diversity theater, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's been consistent for a very long time. I do think that the George Floyd movement was, is a very special moment that has caused a lot of people to take more action than I've seen mm-hmm. ever in my lifetime. Yeah, And I really like the mantra of make the hire, send the wire. But I would say the people that are making hires and sending wires are still very small, even though you're starting to see it happen. And I'm excited about it, especially when you see really cool things like, um, I think it was Yale, that they made that announcement about like the LP base, 
like and how like um since they give the money to a lot of these venture capital firms the Yale endowment you're talking about exactly Yale endowment they said that like if you if your portfolio isn't black or like have black people in it then they might not they're not going to give you no money or they may there was a word in there that gave them an outward said they may yeah. not give you money but i like the public statement you always got to follow the money to see what's going on right yeah and and i'm doing the same thing with this election to see what's going on and how things change and there's certain people that have the power to change things and i do think that it's going to come from a combination of of vcs of entrepreneurs and individuals but i don't think it's going to be we're going to see the quickest change through heavy-handed policy and enforcing people to do things but we gotta we'll see what happens i don't know yeah and so you've been out here since 2014 what was your worst day uh, i would say when the pandemic hit i think when the pandemic hit it was a scary moment because all the schools stopped their enrollments um, oh, are most of these boot camps physical? I'm, I'm okay. talking about just I'm talking about just March, just March. So like in March, everybody just kind of like stopped, stopped and waited, and that that caused our revenue to drop and to have like our largest burn month, and we're very capital efficient. And so that was like a scary moment, but then we were able to make some adjustments and communicate with everyone and things started charge to ramp up again. And to your point, like business is booming, ed tech is crushing it. Workforce development is a big deal. And we've been growing revenue by 20% monthly. We've been profitable for the last four months and we're just going in. And just so you know, numbers, like we have over a million people a month coming to career comma right now. And in the, um, in the next two years, we should be at about uh, 20 million a month. That's that's what that's What, just people to. going to your website just to kind of... People going around. to our website, yeah, to noodle around. So I would say the vast majority of people come to career come for career advice, to ask questions, give answers, consume content, kind of like Twitter. But then you're going to have a, a much smaller portion of people that like enroll into training programs, which is great. Hmm. Um, but we're really positioning career combo to become the number one destination for career advice on the internet. Like monetizing from boot camps is how we started to really like get the flywheel going and to create money. Yeah. But we're going to continue to evolve the business model to make it a much bigger and much more powerful platform. Big plans. Big plans. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think those are all my questions. Is there anything else we missed or you think is worth keeping in mind? I think um, since we're on this COVID-19 subject, I think, you know, the shutdowns caused a lot of people to be unemployed, which was also a big boom in career coming. And when they were engaging with our forums, we were able to see their needs. You know, most of the people that were losing jobs were women and people of color. And they were um, using our forums to try mm -hmm. to get laptops and devices, right? There's a huge laptop shortage, not just for oh, black really? people, but just across schools. It's, yeah. it's huge. And I noticed that early before everybody was talking about it. So I'm pat myself on the back for that one um, with the team. And um, we, um, we reached out to the Capo Center for Social Impact in Oakland and we said, hey, we need to do this this campaign. I'm not a nonprofit. You guys are. Yeah. Can you guys serve as our fiscal sponsor? And so um, we launched this campaign called Reskill America, the great rehiring initiative, where we will reach out to IT departments at companies in our network to get them to donate laptops. They didn't have laptops to donate. They would give money and we it would all be tax deductible since it's a nonprofit. Right. And right. then we would be the facilitator to essentially be laptop distributors to people that were serious about enrolling in programs and starting in programs. And so that's, that's what we did. And, um, 
It worked out very well. So far, I've raised a little over $200,000. We got about a thousand laptops after wow. we made this announcement that I was telling you about. We're going to, um, I'm going to finish that process and get everybody, all the money there. But I also want to just take it to another level and just make sure we have a constant pipeline of laptops coming through for people that need uh, those things. And if you think about the impact of 5,000 people getting jobs that pay about a hundred thousand, that's a half a billion dollar impact. And 5,000 people is a very small number out of 55 million. So we plan to rescale not just America, but the entire world. So, yeah. The world. The world. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that I mentioned the K-Porters. They were, they were one of my first guests on this podcast. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, they're awesome. I love them. They're very cool. They're very cool. Very cool. Very cool. Well, cool. Well, look, thank you for taking the time, man. I appreciate it. I hope Georgia goes the way we want it to go today. Yeah, bro. It was hard to sleep last night. We'll see how it turns out. I know. I hear you. I hear you. Well, good luck, and uh, I look forward to following the story. Thank you again. Likewise, man. All right, man. Thank you, brother. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Ruben for taking the time. I want to thank you for listening and, of course, giving us a rating and review. I really appreciate it. Makes my day. I'll, I'll read out a couple um, in the next week, next week's episode, because there's been some good ones lately. So um, thank you again for your support and for listening, etc. I am writing, as ever, in this weekend's paper at thetimes.co.uk. We'll be writing actually about big tech and what this election means for them, so do check that out. I am on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. I say it all the time. Stay safe. Stay sane, y'all. And I will talk to you next week. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.